Good morning. Well, man, I uh, this week as my Bible reading is taking me through Second uh, Chronicles and First and Second Chronicles, and I'll read about the Levites, He Man, He Man. Like, how many had Castle Grayskull and He Man, right, fighting Skeletor? Like two of us. Okay. Um, and so He-Man, Jeduthun, Asaph, these great Levitical leaders who David appointed to play before the Lord all the time. I think about these guys because they don't come here to play because they're putting on a concert. They come to play to worship the Lord and invite you to join them. And how cool is that? that that's really awesome. So I'm thankful for them this morning. And uh, I'm already a little funky with my voice simply because as they were playing some of my favorite songs, I'm back in the back singing and I'm one of those that need to be by a speaker because it's not pleasant when you hear my voice sing. But when, so if, if I can hear myself, I don't sing a lot because <laughs> it's bad. But when I'm by a speaker, I feel like I can rock. And so I've been rolling this morning. And so I'm already a little funky in the voice. So pardon me if I sound like I'm a teenager. Uh, my voice may crack a couple of times, but that will be oh. Okay, I suppose, huh? Well, this morning we're back in 1 Timothy as we study through 1 Timothy, and then we're going to be launching to 2 Timothy soon after that, and then Titus. Uh, and and uh, as we study about life together on mission, the church doing God's work. Um, and so Paul has come to a place in the text where he's going to deal with the issue of restoring and maintaining biblical eldership. Restoring and maintaining biblical eldership. So we're in 1 Timothy 5. Verse 17 to 25. So I'm going to read that. And then uh, we're going we're gonna to flow through. As I've kind of gotten in the habit of doing for a couple of weeks. If you're looking at the notes online. You're going to notice that there's a, uh, some commentary. As far as some parsing of verbs. And some definitions in the text. And so they're in red. So that hopefully you can tell the difference there. And so if you're looking along and reading with that. Just note that we're not reading my commentary. Inside the text that I put there for you. We're just going to read the text itself. It says 1 Timothy 5, starting in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No, no longer... Drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Godly leadership is absolutely crucial, it's essential in the kingdom of God. Leadership that only a Harvard business grad can provide isn't crucial to the advance of the kingdom. That's not to say that a Harvard grad can't lead in the kingdom. not saying that at all. It's just that leadership in the kingdom is constructed on the values of God's kingdom rather than 
simply education or simply talent alone. Often we find in the kingdom people who are talented leaders or have the education are poor leaders because they're leaning upon their education and some sense of innate talent rather than the values of God's kingdom. And they turn the church into an institution, not the mighty moving agent of the kingdom of God that defies education and talent. Great men who epitomize these kingdom values are often shoved aside because they don't facilitate growth enough, fast enough. Well, after all, right, if you're a great leader, your organization should grow numerically, right? Often some of these great kingdom leaders are abused by unrealistic expectations that aren't biblical. And when they don't meet the expectations, those men become a constant target for those who want to pay somebody to do their ministry for them. Often the mentality is that if one is paid to be a pastor, then he's solely responsible for the kingdom. And if he fails, then it's his fault. So let's bring him before the Human Resources Committee and dump his rear end on the street. So this man is ridden hard, poorly compensated, poorly respected, attacked, and then asked to move on, or he chooses to leave for the sake of survival. In our denomination, the average tenure of a pastor is right around two years. By the way, just a few of us in our county are already considered long-termers. I being one of them. Emmett being one of them. We're 12 years in. We're old. There are guys who came in the same time we did that left in a year for that type of stuff. The other extreme is that some may come and they never lead toward the kingdom. Now they do church subculture well, what appears to be kingdom things. It's just the accepted goal of the church, whatever it happens to be. And, but they never teach. And they never preach at any depth. They may even lead into wrong belief and avoid certain parts of Scripture because those are... Hard passages that may contradict their theological presuppositions. But those guys are allowed to stay and they get away with disobeying the Scriptures. Either way, either way, leadership in the church is vital. And succession of leadership is also vital. Some people in the church have led Ephesus astray. We know this. We've been studying through 1 Timothy for a while. And the elders had begun to fail in upholding the mystery of the gospel. And the church at Ephesus had begun to leave her first love. And Timothy's task is a large one. Hosea 4.9 Like people, like priest. That passage reminds God's people, and it should remind us today, that the reality is if they were perishing, it is because of not knowing the truth and not being taught the truth. Because the priest had started to look like the people rather than the God he was an under-shepherd of. He'd become a man of the people, not a man of God. Like people, like priests. 
It's vital that Jesus' under-shepherds be like the shepherd and lead like Him. And it's vital that the people of God honor those who do that job well. So how does Timothy receive Paul's instruction? What instruction does Paul give to Timothy to go about the restoration of and the maintaining of biblical eldership that will then restore and maintain the people of God. The church at Ephesus is in a tenuous position. False teaching, false teaching from the leaders, false teaching from the widows, false teaching from women who are seeking to usurp the authority of the men, false teaching, myths, and in the genealogies. We've studied all this. They're in a radically tenuous position. So, What is it that Paul does and how does he instruct Timothy to restore and maintain this biblical eldership that has been handed down from the apostles for the people of God? Well, first, verse 17 and 18. Paul tells Timothy to make sure they honor the elders who do their job well. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. For one to resist payment for ministry, because Paul did, is a fake humility built on a lie. You want to know why? Because Paul received payment and sustenance from the churches he served as an apostle. Let me read to you Philippians 4, 18-20. I've received full payment and more. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul receiving payment for his ministry was a fragrant offering to God. And then he turns to them and blesses them and says, And my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Although Paul worked to support himself, he didn't reject his full right to receive necessary supply from his labor. He did reject it at Corinth for a reason, but only at Corinth from what we can tell. Because of the difficult relationship he had with the people at Corinth, he rejected payment for a gospel reason for their sake. But he did not reject payment for ministry. Those of us who are founding pastors at Three Rivers have been pleased to serve at our own cost and labor for our time here for a lengthy season. And we've been honored through some payment as well. And that is no sin. We've often undertaken... Upon ourselves, perhaps excessive pride. And this is a little bit of a confession statement here on my part. Often taking excessive pride and not receiving full wage from the church, but it's not wrong to honor elders well. As our church grows, and as we have the responsibility to start new campuses, And as the workload on elders increases, we need to figure out how to obey this passage as well as we obey the Great Commission. It's not one or the other. It is obey the Scriptures well in all areas. Having said that, what is communicated here in verse 17 and 18 about the honoring of elders well? 
What does Paul say here about how to honor them well? Well, first of all, I want you to note the Scripture's instruction is imperative. It's imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Honoring of the elders is not optional. The Bible demands it. It feels self-seeking. And truthfully, this is hard for me to say because it's not my nature to do this kind of thing. I have an unhealthy and biblically inaccurate view on this issue. Confession. My early experience in pastoral ministry has been that elders were the least compensated, easiest target, and that the elder must be fine with living in poverty and at the poverty level and in constant fear that somebody's going to rip him a new exit location. That's what I've grown up watching. And maybe that's your experience. Pastor's the target. He's the whipping boy. He's the one that's supposed to get it done. And I show up to get entertained. If he doesn't entertain me, I'm going somewhere else. And on my way out, I'm going to rip him a new one. To the glory of Jesus, because that's my job. Jesus appointed person to rip the pastor. I've watched pastors take unnecessary junk from, quote, believers, disrespecting them in the name of opinion, not moral failure. And they do it in a manner that's unbiblical and unholy, yet justified because the pastor was the paid guy or just because he was the pastor. I've watched, I've seen this, I experienced this through another brother having it happen to him. Barely be able to pay their bills and feed their families. And someone provided them groceries only to have the amount of the groceries deducted from their check. Somebody's going to hell. <laughs> I just, I got to say that. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> As clearly as the Scriptures say to make disciples of all nations, it mandates that elders be respected as Jesus' under-shepherds. Or you can rip this section out and choose not to do it. Feel free. So don't think that these men, your pastors, the nine of us, exist as open targets for opinion-laden expectations set so high Jesus can't meet them. Honor is due. It's mandated. Second, take note that the imperative is based on the Bible. It's based on the Scriptures. In verse 18, this is fun because there's some, there's, some, there's some fun scholarly junk going on here too. That I'm going to just, because I've, I've mentioned it to you before in an aside in the past. And I'm going to mention it because it's right here in the text. In verse 18, Paul cites Deuteronomy 25, 4. And I'm going to take time to read all these passages because as I work through my notes this week, I recognize I'm just, I'm a 45-minute to 50-minute guy. I can't help it. This is kind of the way it is. If I'm going to deal with the text. Well, I can't do it in 30 minutes. Sorry. Maybe I need to be a better writer. But I'm not going to read the passage. It's in the notes. You can go read it. But here, Paul cites Deuteronomy 25, 4. That tells us the ox shouldn't be muzzled when it's treading out the grain. And then he takes time in 1 Corinthians 9, 3-12 to to expound on that passage. 
stating to the church at Corinth he has the right to receive that from them, but he's intentionally rejecting it for purposes. He didn't reject it from Philippi, but he did from the church at Corinth. So Paul cites Deuteronomy 25.40 that expounds upon in 1 Corinthians 9. You should go read the 1 Corinthians 9 passage and Paul's exposition of it. From Deuteronomy 25.4. But then he does this cool thing and he cites Luke 10.7 recording the words of Jesus at the hands of Luke. So although Paul and Barnabas rejected their right of remuneration at Corinth, they gladly accepted it in other situations, as we've noted already, because it's a standard that the Father has set. It was in the Bible. But a little Bible scholarship side note here. Paul's quoting Luke's writing in Luke 10.7 is absolutely fascinating. You know what that means? Luke was already written and in circulation by the early A.D. 60s. So two things. Number one, this affirms that these writings were already, the Gospels and much of the New Testament was already in circulation. That's big. Meaning these accounts were written soon after, soon after Christ's resurrection. Meaning, in case you don't know why that's important, the accounts were written very close to the actual events themselves, meaning they're historically accurate. That's huge. And notice Paul quotes Luke's writing as Scripture. Meaning they already recognize the writings of the New Testament as being equal to the writings of the Old Testament. That makes me like nerdy happy. Meaning, just side note here, your New Testament is accurate and as authoritative as the Old Testament. So enjoy that a little bit. The Bible is not only inspired, it is without error and it's authoritative. This is why I say it's in the manual. If it's in the manual, it's in the manual. You know what it is to be a Christian? There you go. There. From God. Scripture. Bible. It's good stuff. So back to the main point. The main point here. In Jesus' words, particularly in Luke 10, 7, to the 72 he's sending out, is that they're to carry no supplies for themselves, but should expect that they would be compensated for their work. And by the way, this is Jesus' exposition of what he's already inspired in Deuteronomy 25, 4. It's in the manual. Third, take note of the ones who are to be honored. The elders ruling well... And those who labor at preaching and teaching are worthy. Those who rule or those who exercise leadership, those who work hard, the word here, kopiao, means to labor to the point of being tired. So those who rule to the point of being tired, those who make decisions, those who are on the front lines determining direction, those who labor, kopiao, to the point of being tired at preaching and teaching. Your eyes are crossing because you're staring at the page, seeking the meaning and the application of the text. Those are the ones worthy of being honored. In other words, pastoral ministry is not a cush gig. It requires laboring to the point of exhaustion. The elders who make good decisions and go first 
And those who work at the proclamation and instruction of the Scriptures are worthy. Paul sets a standard for the elder. The elder must be a hard worker, not a lazy worker. They must be a proactive, self-starting, on task, not needing to be reminded, not satisfied, big boy. It's man work. Paul says this man deserves to be honored. But what does that honor look like? Well, finally take note that those who work and excel are to receive double honor. This does not mean double pay. Does not mean double pay. The best understanding of this passage goes back to Chrysostom, who lived between 347 A.D. and 407 A.D. He was archbishop at Constantinople, who understood the double honor to mean twofold honor. Twofold honor consisting of respect and compensation. Calvin agreed with that in his commentaries on Chrysostom's work and on this passage. Respect, honor, compensation. As I've said already, I'm not healthy regarding my approach to or acceptance of this truth. I greatly delight in working my job and working hard at being an educator. Matter of fact, I've got, I'm leaving today to take rising seniors to camp up on the Cumberland Plateau. I'll be leading a bunch of high school seniors on a retreat this weekend. And, and so I take great delight in laboring. But being raised by depression generation folks, who leaned towards some levels of legalism, created a poverty theology in me. Prosperity theology is a lie. God doesn't make it His aim to give health, wealth, and overflowing material possessions to all Christians. But poverty theology is a lie too. The idea that the poorer, the more spiritual. Father doesn't intend for believers to shun all resources and be poor and barely able to get by when they can do better and probably should have better done for them. It's funny and it's interesting how in our context, if you lead athletics, you're the guy who's worthy of being paid. We pay you the wage, baby. But if you're the Bible guy, it's like, hey, ministry. Hey, man, just do it because you love Jesus. So get by. God bless you. Boy, doesn't that tip your hand to your worldview? Sports, more important than God. Right? Where it's funny how people who aren't in pastoral ministry think that, oh, you should just be able to get by. You do it for the love of the ministry. But would you do your job for the love of your job and not pay your bills? Love being a Whatever. Would you do it for free? Could you do it for free? Right? You see, I have a hard time receiving pay for ministerial work because my framework is broken. So this is hard for me to say, but it's in the text. And so as we grow as a body, what we can't do is do what the rest of our culture does and expect that those who are Christ's under-shepherds shouldn't be respected and honored as well as properly compensated. We have to do that as well as we do the Great Commission. So in any way we can, we don't fail to honor the men who lead well. Well, verse 19. Secondly, Paul tells Timothy to protect elders and the people. I think it's important to note here that the moral implications of the text 
were not just for the pastors, but for the people as well. We've established that already, right? The qualifications for elder. It's not like folks who weren't elders could go out and be drunkards, right? You can't, but I can, right? The moral standards are for the whole church. And so likewise, these standards here that are moral in nature are not just for the elders, but for the whole So Paul says here in verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul's instruction here is built on Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 20, of which Jesus exposits in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And I really want to read both of these passages. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to do it. Take note in these passages as you go and read them. The passage is God's instruction to protect the people as well as the elder from false accusations and opinion-laden confrontations. Now, if a person or an elder sins by breaking clear spiritual commandments or particularly in the case of an elder, failing to meet the moral qualifications of an elder and bringing public shame on the gospel, then those who've witnessed the sin should follow the Matthew 18 model that the Lord Jesus set up based on the Deuteronomy passage that leads to redemption or, if necessary, church discipline. There can be many, many nuances to the practice of this passage, but the spirit of the passage is to protect people from silly issues raised by a person with an axe to grind or from false accusation from a person with evil intent. If there is sin, then the model should be employed, no doubt. We've had to do that as a body. But if there is a failure for a person to meet some unspoken expectation then the holder of the unspoken expectation should repent for having the unspoken expectation that's unbiblical to the Lord and move on and not bother the brother or sister with the issue. One of the most self-centered things that people can do is to have an unspoken expectation of somebody. They break it not knowing they've broken it. And the person's angry at them. They get convicted of their sin. And then they go tell the person that they were angry at them, and they've forgiven them, and they've let it go, and the person never knew it was an issue. You know why that's self-centered? It's because that person's doing that to assuage their own conscience for their sin, and bringing condemnation on that other person, not knowing they've ever done anything wrong. And then that person's conscience is bothered, going, geez, what did I really do? And then fellowship is broken because somebody was more concerned with themselves than they were with just doing what's right in their own heart. Does that make sense? These instructions are given here to protect the fellowship and protect unity. If you have some unbiblical expectation that you forced it on somebody else and they've broken it not knowing they've broken it, you need to repent, not them. Is that clear? I mean, you can't do that in marriage, can you? That ends up in counseling, right? You expect your spouse to do something that's not written in the Bible and then you start treating them poorly because they've broken your expectation and don't even know it? 
You know you can't do that in the home, don't you? And all you married people going, yeah, that's right. We didn't work through that before. You know. Then if you can't do it in marriage, why can you do it in the body? You can't. It won't work in the home. It doesn't work in the church. Does that make sense? And so therefore, these truths are there to guide the proper dealing with the breaking of scriptural commandments inside the body for the elder and for the person. In other words, you shouldn't expect to have church discipline exercised on you for doing something that's not explicitly condemned in Scripture. This is where grace comes in in the life of the body and exercise of a Holy Spirit-driven conscience and the allowing for that conscience to flourish under the Spirit's direction as we accept each other in unity while not condemning each other for those things. That's beautiful. That's Romans 14, by the way. I love it. Paul addresses those who are eating certain things and those who are drinking certain things and those who aren't. And he tells them, he never tells the eaters and drinkers stop and he never tells the non-eaters and drinkers to start. He says, be unified. Meaning, keep on eating, keep on drinking. Keep on not eating, keep on not drinking. Be in unity. And so therefore, the elder is protected. The people are protected from unbiblical, unspoken standards. Let me give you some truths to help guide the practice of protecting each other. I'm going to give you eight little truths here to help guide the practice of guarding one another. And listen, if all you're considering is grinding your axe against another person, there's probably a good shot you just need to be gone. Can I just be frank? If all you can think about is grinding your axe with another brother or sister in Christ over an unbiblical, unspoken expectation, you need to repent. And if you can't repent, you're better off just kind of moving on. I know it's probably a little harder than you were expecting coming to church this morning. But guarding unity and peace is vital. The church at Ephesus was being ripped apart by this kind of stuff. And Paul told Timothy, command and teach the truth. These myths and endless genealogies have to go. So therefore, only receive accusations based on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And by the way, that Matthew 18 passage, just an FYI, the end of it, Jesus says, for whether two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Please do not misuse that passage by saying, well, there are two of us here now. Jesus is present, so now we can worship. That is a blatant misuse of that passage. That passage has nothing to do with Jesus being present in the worship service when there's at least three people. Jesus, in the exposition of the passage, is letting us know that when we're dealing with actual sin issues and we come together and follow His instructions, that He is there superintending the process. That's what Jesus is saying. Meaning, Jesus is in charge of dealing with sin. And if we obey His instruction, He's working in that process to bring redemption or purge the body of sin. That's, that, so go use that passage properly. Does it make sense? It's kind of weird you think, well, God, it's just me and my buddy. The Bible says we're two or three. It's kind of questioning. Is Jesus here? It's just us. A little sneak, a little hint for you. Because of indwelling Holy Spirit, if you're by yourself, Jesus is there. Make sense? So, we want to protect each other in community. So here's some things to guide the protecting of one another with the spirit of this passage. Number one, we are the family of God first. Standing together, covering each other in a covenant relationship. After that, we do ministry together. 
And our relationship with each other is more important than performance. Number two, we agree to speak Bible truth to each other in love at all times, not truth according to your opinion. It's funny how opinion can become Bible truth. We agree to speak Bible truth in love to each other at all times. Number three, if the church family is successful, then we're all successful. Number four, don't take offense. Don't be offended even if it's justified. Nobody came here to make anybody angry on purpose. Nobody got up going, hmm, I wonder how I can make Jolly mad today. Right? Nobody's intending to, to hurt anybody on purpose. Don't take offense. Number five, those who don't worship are the ones who complain. So get before God and worship and see if He deals with your complaining issue. Number six, first hear from the Father in the Word. God has spoken, and it doesn't get any clearer than right here. Hear from God in the Word, then be obedient to what He's saying. Operate, work together in servant leadership. And then finally, assume good intentions. Assume good intentions and protect one another. That makes sense? Third, verse 20 to 21. Paul tells Timothy to correct elders and the people. Paul tells Timothy to correct the elders and the people. As for those who persist in sin, not those who are repenting, not those who are seeking to be righteous, those who are seeking to walk in obedience, those who persist in sin, the hard-hearted, the unrepentant, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Because there was a need at Ephesus for some elders to be corrected, Paul makes sure Timothy does this properly and institutes a biblical model for correcting elders as well as correcting wayward members of the fellowship. This is another moral qualification that applies to everyone as well, right? Oh yeah, correct the elders, let the people go. No, of course not. Again, we've established the moral qualifications of 1 Timothy are not to be applied to the elders only. Rather, they are to be applied to the whole fellowship. But the need to apply these standards to the elders especially is due to the fact that they will be the first brought to public trial and possibly death. So their moral standing must be of highest importance. But the members couldn't just ignore the moral standards. Note here that this correction was to take place in public only after the person's refusal to repent of violating the Scriptures. He says, as for those who persist in sin... The understanding that the people are following the Lord's instruction in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and that the person who will not repent should be dealt with in a public manner is clear. The public nature of this correction was intended to create a level of holy fear. It's funny how our Western sensibilities kind of recoil at that idea, isn't it? 
The public nature of dealing with sin, now this is huge, imitates the heavenly reality that Father knows our sin and nothing is hidden from His sight. And because He's a loving Father, will correct His children. And this should cause a believer to strive for holiness and repentance due to the holy fear of violating Father's righteousness and receiving His correction. Therefore, this public correction is not unkind. It's a gracious action that is a means of the Lord's grace to rescue believers from the cancer of sin. The problem is we just assume sin is benign. We just assume rebellion against God is okay. So let them keep it covered. It's all right. God forbid that they feel a sense of shame. Not thinking that if they don't repent, they may not be a believer and they may go to hell. And so therefore the public nature of dealing with this imitates this heavenly reality that Father knows and nothing is hidden and He corrects His children because He loves His children and He seeks their good. You know what that does for me? It causes me to evaluate myself daily. Because I have brothers who will call me out. Man, just don't call. I'm, I'm good. I'm center. I've done. We, we call one another. We have questions we ask each other. What are you looking at? What's the computer used to look like for you? What are you seeing? What you thinking? What you doing? Not trying to pry, but because holiness is vital. I'll tell you, just don't tell everybody else. Man, I'm trying to repent. I'm good. I'm turning away from that, right? We're told in verse 21 that this correction is to be done without judging too quickly and without any partiality. In other words, all in the fellowship are given the process of Scripture to holiness, but all are given that same process. No one gets to escape accountability to follow the Lord Jesus in all things. This is why sneaking in the back and leaving before you can engage anybody in the life of the church isn't church. It's because there is a sense in which doing community together with people who get to know you can treat you as the Father treats you because He loves you and because you love each other. So all are due this same process so we don't get to escape the grace of the Lord. Paul then makes this astounding statement regarding the ultimate reason for correcting folks in sin. The reason is that Father, Son, and the elect angels are watching. It's assumed the Holy Spirit is part of that ministry because of His active ministry and indwelling the people of God. Father, Son... And the elect angels are observing the playing out of God's eternal plan on the global stage. That changes how I look at this moment right now. That changes how I look at time with brothers and sisters. It's not just time. It is Moment in time in which the Father and the Son and the elect angels 
are watching. You ever read that passage and go, hmm. Let me read you. Remember, Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy are written to Timothy, who is shepherding Ephesus. Let me read you a passage from Ephesians 3, the church where Paul is writing to Timothy, who's pastoring. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. You want to know your purpose for living? You want to know you want to know knowledge? You want to know it's in the nature and character of God. Seek him before all other things. Verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was some eternal... He doesn't tell us what the eternal purpose is. He realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just that in the observation of the manifold wisdom of God through the life of the church, the principalities and authorities in the heavenly realms see the wisdom of God. There's a much deeper and richer event taking place in the life of the church than the mundane existence of my little daily experience. God's wisdom is being proclaimed in the heavenly realms to the elect angels and to those who are part of the rebellion. God's wisdom is being put on display in the life of the church. This is one of the reasons the church is not irrelevant. The church is not throwaway. The church is vital. So through striving for holiness in the church and the effort to move people toward holiness, elders and people alike, the Father and the Son are glorified or perhaps dishonored in the heavenly places. And the elect angels celebrate or perhaps mourn. The fallen principalities and powers and rulers of wickedness accuse and berate us in our sin. Isn't that what the Scriptures say? The enemy is an accuser? Or possibly they're taken aback by a pursuit of holiness because Jesus was better than the temptation they set before me. Either way, the events of our life together on mission are not done in isolation from supernatural working. This should cause us to be in awe and careful about our actions and words, and strive for holiness, therefore bringing praise to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even outside of what we bring when we sing publicly. There's more going on than my little agenda right now. Finally, verse 22 to 25, Paul tells Timothy to be careful in selecting elders. Be careful in selecting elders. Some people take this to the nth degree and they're afraid to select anybody. Perhaps some people may take this to the other nth degree and select any and everything that crawls. 
And Paul tells Timothy here to be careful. He doesn't put a number on it. He just says, be careful. Listen to verse 22 to 25. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23 is an aside. It's a commentary about an issue outside, but deals directly with what he's talking about here. We'll talk about that in just a second. He says, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. In selecting church leaders from the church for the office of pastor elder, Paul urges care. The distasteful task of disciplining church leaders calls for upfront wisdom and care and selection because to place in leadership one who's not qualified would be to partake in their sin. Hard questions have to be asked. And need to continue to be asked to ensure the pursuit of righteousness. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That invitation is wide open in this fellowship. If there's a desire to be an under-shepherd of Christ, it's noble. Let's pursue it. But know this, those qualifications stand and we will ask you very hard questions. Because it is awful to have to backtrack and deal with unmet qualifications. So Paul tells Timothy to be careful. Paul asserts, or he inserts a personal note as an aside in the text here, verse 23. And the question is, what place does verse 23 have in the selection of elders, right? He's talking about, don't lay hands on people too hastily. And by the way, drink some wine, Timothy. What place does that have in selecting elders? Well, here's the answer. Timothy's purity was key in the selection process. You ever notice that when you're intentionally rebelling against God that your discernment is off? You ever notice when you're rebelling against God intentionally and you know you are, that your ability to read the Bible and make sense of it is less... Am I the only person that does that? It's like, like I can't even... Like I don't even want to look at my Bible. I'm going to go look at ESPN.com forward slash Atlanta Falcons for the next hour and a half because if I read my Bible, God, God might jump on me a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? Timothy's purity was key in this selection process. If he's to be careful and not lay hands on the wrong people, Timothy had to be walking in holiness. Makes sense, right? Perhaps Timothy had been led into some of the aesthetic practices that were being practiced in the church at Ephesus, which we've dealt with in chapter 4. Maybe he's been led into some of these aesthetic practices of rejecting some things because some of these elders or some of these ladies who are trying to usurp the authority of the men in the church had taken root and Timothy to appease them is just sort of going along with it. And maybe he's abstaining from certain foods and drinks and activities in order to meet their standards so he doesn't have to deal with a hard conversation. But it's obvious Timothy had been drinking water only and apparently was getting sick frequently. Paul knew, as was wisdom of the day, that waterborne sickness made life hard, 
If you've ever been outside the United States of America and had water and born sickness, or heck, even for that matter, you like to be outside and you were thirsty and drank water out of a stream without treating it, and you got a water born sickness, it is not pleasant. So in his day, one way to ensure good health was to reintroduce the consumption of wine back into his diet for the sake of physical health and the spiritual health of rejecting the aesthetic practices imposed on him by those who were teaching lies. Timothy's standing with God wasn't affected by taking water only. He wasn't more holy because he drank only water. I'm more holy than you. As Paul said in Colossians 2.23, these, speaking of aesthetic practices that are external, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In fact, Timothy's efforts at appeasing the false teachers possibly were making him sick. So Timothy had to insist on the truth and live it out by drinking some wine because his purity was actually affected to the negative by practicing asceticism in error. In other words, Timothy's potential sin of succumbing to the practices of these false teachers could cloud his discernment. And what appeared to be holy was actually sin and could affect his ability to discern sin issues in the men that he was to appoint to the office of pastor and elder. So Timothy was to take a drink, get well, and continue on the task. That's fun. In other words, Timothy had to be holy. And asceticism isn't necessarily holy, nor is license. Timothy had to seek holiness. In this instance, he needed to turn the glass up. Paul's final instruction to Timothy was, to summarize it, be discerning. Be discerning. Some people's sins are clear, but some people's sins are well covered. And if you've done life in the church long enough, you know this. This requires discernment. The supernatural Holy Spirit empowered ability to smell the spiritual air and know that all is well or something is amiss because time will always tell. Some people who don't look real spiritual on the outside are actually solid gold. And that can't remain hidden over time. It always comes out. Some who look good on the outside, who carry their Bibles, they speak Christianese, they look the part, are actually death in disguise. And that can't remain hidden either. Some, their sin goes before them. Some, it's hidden, Paul says. The goal of leadership is to discern those things and courageously hold the line, even if people didn't agree. In Luke 7, 31-35, Jesus compared His generation to children who complained because they played the flute and people listening didn't dance. So, what did the kids do? They played a sad song, a dirge, and then they didn't even mourn either. And then Jesus says, John the Baptist came rejecting all the stuff and you said he had a demon. I came eating and drinking the things John rejected and you say I'm a glutton and a friend of sinners. What the heck is it? And then Jesus said, wisdom is proved wise by its fruit. 
The reality is that Timothy's leadership and wisdom in obeying the Scripture would be called demonic by some, sinner-friendly by others. But the fruit of obeying Scripture would be shown to be right, and that was to be Timothy's aim, not people's opinion of him. He didn't send out any surveys asking what they liked. It's Timothy's job. I would say to you, that's your pastors, all of our jobs. So in closing this bad boy down, the reality is that sometimes preaching and teaching the Bible and doing that task, there's not a cool way to wrap it up. In preaching class, they teach you you got to, like, take the plane off. you got to fly it. you got to land it smooth. Like, any of you guys ever flown, rough landings are not fun. Or one time as a kid, my father flew small planes. And that's why I grew up loving airplanes and flying. And one time we had a rough landing in a small patch of a field on purpose. We were doing a search for a missing kid. And I was a little guy. And, and uh, it was a rough landing. We had to swoop down over the tops of the trees, drop that little Piper Cub into a field, bounce around a little bit. And that was awesome but they tell you not to do that when you're preaching right have a cool story that takes the sermon off make your points and then land it nice and smooth with the story and the problem with that is that's just not how i'm wired sometimes in preaching the bible and i always noticed in preaching class guys when they had to preach always chose easy passages that had nice you know alliterative points and Told great stories. And I, I was rough as a cob because I already learned all those bad habits before I got to seminary. So I didn't make an A in preaching class. I made an A in the coursework and a B in delivery. <laughs> Whatever. Sometimes in preaching the Bible, there's not a cool way to wrap it up. And I can find a story online. You know, there are volumes of like stories for preachers to tell. I don't buy those. I think that's crap. So sometimes there's not a cool way to wrap it up and sometimes there's not a cool way to move people's emotions to worship. Tied in with the next song, you know. I actually think that's cheesy. If I went to church that did that, well, I wouldn't go there. But it's not my style. Sometimes the application has to take place in the trenches, not in three points I give you at the end of the sermon. You need to learn to temper your expectations. Oh, God, Jolly gave me five things to do as soon as I walk out of church today. I, there may not be five things for you to do at the end of some passage. That's a bad worldview. Maybe Postman will hit that next week. He's going to preach the next passage. I gave him a hard one. <laughs> Chapter 6. Go ahead and read ahead. Sometimes the application has to take place in the trenches when spiritual bombs are dropping and there's demonic attack. Or the wars going on for fighting for the kingdom in the midst of enemy territory. This is one of those passages. We've started learning how to do this. We're 12 years into trying to figure out how to do the kingdom in Rome, Georgia. But we have to keep on learning and we have to keep on doing. And make sure we continue for as long as the Lord will sustain the work. There's our application. So let's hear. You, discipleship. You ready? Discipleship's easy. Hear the Lord, obey the Lord. It's that simple. See, I, my problem is I can't write books. The reason is, is because it, nobody's going to buy that. That's like not even a page. Hear, obey. It's like two words. 
I guess I could go through and go, hearing. Hearing equals, boom, right? Like, you know, 100 pages on hearing and 100 on obeying. But I'd just rather just tell you and let the Lord tell you how to do that. So anyway, let's hear. Let's hear. Have ears that hear. You know, Jesus said this. He would say something and he would, he would close it with this imperative. You don't get the imperative in the English language. It doesn't come through. Like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It sounds like, in English, Jesus is kind of inviting you to, well, listen to me if you want to. No, no, it's, it's in the imperative. It just doesn't come through. If you translate it in the imperative in English, it was, he who has ears to hear, hear. So hear. That's the mandate of the Lord. Hear the passage. Hear it. Do it. Let's hear. Let's have ears to hear. Let's obey. Let's do. And as we continue on the journey of life together on mission and bring the kingdom of Jesus to people here in Roman Floyd County and our people group, here's what I believe will happen. Jesus will continue to draw people to Himself. He will continue to save His hidden peoples out of Roman Floyd County and among our people group. And He will do this really cool thing. At the end of services where nobody would think it would be like, Time to worship. People will worship. Why? Because they've heard the God they love more than life. And they will worship because Jesus is better than life. Not because of a cool story that led me into five applications and transitioned to the next song. If I need that to worship, it might not be worship. So my invitation to you is come and hear and obey and sing to Him because He is worthy. You want to do that? Me too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. Your testimonies are our delight. They enlighten the soul. They enliven the heart. And Lord, we wrestle with trying to take those truths and apply them inside our context. So Holy Spirit, rule that. Be in charge of that. Be paraclete, counselor. Walk along beside us. Speak, proclaim alongside us. Give us instruction and teaching. Correct concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Lead us in your way. Do it in unity. I pray that you would come against sin I pray you come against sin against each other. I pray you would come against all things that are outside the manual and make us people of your word. God, I pray that you would continue the work of saving Roman Floyd County. Use this little body. Use the brothers and sisters all across our county who love the gospel too. Wherever they find themselves, whatever fellowship they're in. God, use your people to make much of you in our town. And I pray, God, that there be a launching of the nations and to the nations for Roman Floyd County. Holy Spirit, rule this time well. It's yours. And we ask this in Jesus' name.